Our sermon this morning is from Psalm 111. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 111. If not, grab a pew Bible from the chair in front of you. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Psalm 111 on page 477. So go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, We're on a short break from the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for some time now. Um, you know, spending about half of our Sundays in Luke and then kind of, you know, stepping out of Luke for a few, uh, you know, Sundays to take care of some other uh, sermon series and things like that. Um, But we're going to take a short break this Sunday and next Sunday and look at two complimentary Psalms, uh, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. Like I said, they're complimentary. They kind of go together as a unit. They were written presumably by this. We don't know who wrote them, but we presume that Psalm 111 and Psalm 112 were written by the same guy uh, because they have uh, a unified uh, kind of singular structure to them. Together, Psalm 111 and Psalm 12 form an acrostic, uh, which means that the first letter of the first word of each verse in Psalm 111 and 112 kind of go through the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So you don't necessarily see it in English, but you would see it uh, in the, the original language. You'd be able to kind of tell very clearly these two go together. It's kind of a couplet. They, they, they almost are one psalm that's kind of part A and part B that kind of sit uh, together. So they're, they're linked together structurally um, and in terms of just, you know, the, the, the letters. Uh, but they're also linked together in terms of content. So Psalm 111, what we're going to see as we read this morning, is uh, all about God. The the glory of God, the supremacy of God, uh, the beauty, the magnificence of God, how great God is, what God has done for us, how God has treated us better than we deserve to be treated. That's Psalm 111, God. Psalm 112, we'll look at next Sunday, is about the man of God, the person who trusts in God, the person who follows and believes in God, what he looks like, what his life looks like, what his character looks like, and how he interacts with God and how he interacts with other people. So Psalm 111 is God. Psalm 112 is the the man of God or the the people of, of God. Now, preaching... I'm kind of a a firm believer that preaching, uh, when it's done right, when it's effective and and biblical and faithful, is uh, going to include uh, two components. It's going to stitch together kind of two fabrics, uh, and and that of of, uh, the indicative and the imperative, right? Uh, Indicative is declarative statements that are true, like statements of fact that are true and you hear and you believe, and then imperative are exhortations or commands or, or, you know, what we should do in response. The Bible is full of uh, a myriad of, of, of indicative statements about things that are true, and it's full of imperative commands of things that we need to, to do, right? Read through the Bible, right? Think about the, the truth of the gospel, the, 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 message, the message of the, the, the gospel itself has indicative and imperative elements to it, right? Uh, God is sovereign. God is holy. Uh, God is righteous. You've sinned against God. You've been separated from God. You've incurred the wrath of God. Jesus has come to save you. Jesus has lived a perfect life uh, fulfilling the righteous demands of God. Jesus has died a sacrificial death satisfying the wrath of God. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over Satan and sin and death. These are all declarative statements, indicative statements of facts. But, but, that, but the, and the gospel is those, but the gospel, the gospel is also uh, a call to 
respond to those facts in repentance and faith. Turn from your sin. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. Entrust yourself to Him. Place your soul into His hands. Stop trusting yourself and trust Christ instead. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. Walk with Him in faithfulness and discipleship. It's a bunch of imperative commands. They're both... They're, they're like the, uh, the gospel is not the gospel without both of those together, indicative and imperative. You know, you read through... Uh, I mean, read through the book of Romans and you kind of see this flow kind of working its, itself out, right? Romans 1 through 11, you're going to see a number of indicative statements, right? 116, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. 118, the wrath of God against sin is being revealed from heaven. 125, man has exchanged the truth of God for, for a lie. Romans 2, man is rendered without excuse. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of his glory, but they're justified by his grace. Romans 5, we're justified by faith and have peace with God. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. God has adopted us as sons and given us his spirit. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. All facts, all indicative statements. And then you hit Romans 12 through the end of the book. You see things like present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Love one another. Obey the governing authorities. Stop judging one another. Pray for one another. Pray for me, Paul. Greet my friends when you receive this letter. All, all commands, right? The gospel uh, is uh, intrinsically comprised of and the Bible is replete with and it's full of uh, indicative statements and imperative commands. So we're going to be a faithful preacher you'll inevitably find yourself traversing in both of those spaces. You'll declare the good news and you'll comfort or you'll declare the good news that comforts and ensures assures people and you'll call people to respond in a way that elicits conviction and and repentance, right? Good preaching uh, is going to comfort those people that are afflicted by encour- with encouraging truth about God. And, and it's also going to afflict the comfortable by calling them to repent of sin and trust in, in Jesus. And different texts that you, some, that you come across to preach are going to uh, have both of those, or, or maybe they're going to lean one way or the other. And so different sermons are going to lean more towards assurance and, and comfort and blessing the soul of the people that listen. And some are going to lean, lean toward this prophetic call to respond and, and repent. Psalm 111 leans heavily toward the indicative. We're going to see as we read through it is just verse after verse after verse of just blessed, soul-comforting facts about God and who He is. Right? It's the Bible's version of like comfort food. Right? Sit on the couch, watch your favorite movie, watch a game, eat food that you enjoy. It's comforting. It's something that's meant to be relished and and savored. It probably won't be a sermon with a lot of, you know, let's go, take the hill, right? Like, get all amped up like a NFL linebacker or something, right? There's a time for those. I've I've preached sermons like those. I will again. Uh, But some texts are just meant to assure and bring comfort and kind of evoke a sense of awe and kind of uh, wonder and grandeur and, and kind of worship, like make, causing us to look at God and rejoice in who he is. That's, that's Psalm 111. So I'm going to read it, 10 verses, 
And I just want us to listen, right? Close your eyes if you want. Follow along on the screen in your Bible. I want us to listen and just meditate on and contemplate the character of God, His beauty, and His glory. And then we'll take a few minutes to consider it together. It reads, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous work to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. God has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding, and His praise endures forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a, what a beautiful psalm that speaks of a glorious God that we have the privilege of knowing together. Lord, we ask you to, to just bless these next few minutes as we meditate on who you are and what you have done for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, starting first one. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Right? So he starts with worshiping God, exalting God, right? Declaring in his heart and in his soul who God is and thanking God for who he is. This over like his heart that's overflowing with joy and gladness and gratitude because of God. And that's kind of the it's kind of the paradigm of the whole uh, Bible, right, is that, that God is, God acts, God speaks, God kind of is in and of himself the, the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, the primary existing one who needs nothing from anyone, and we respond. We respond to who God is, we respond. Who, whoever God is, we look to Him, we respond to Him with faith and obedience or trust or, or worship. God, God is the one that we are, are centered around. God is the one who we revolve around. Right? We, we live in a world that is God, we live in a world that is not God-centered, but that is man-centered. And we all tend to, you know, Unless we actively and intentionally push back against it, we'll find ourselves kind of flowing downstream into man-centeredness or self-centeredness. It's all about me. It's all about my experiences. It's all about my preferences. The customer is always right. And that idea is foreign to the book. The, the Bible uh, does not have me at its center, man at its center. It has God at its center, right? God is the creator. We revolve around him. 
God's experience is the one that matters most. God's existence is the one that matters most. We, God doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around God. We see God, savor God, observe God, respond to God, worship God. Right? If you proceed with the idea that you're at the center of everything and God's job is to revolve around you, serve you, make you feel better. God's experience is fundamentally about your experience. You'll never quite feel comfortable in your own skin in the Christian faith. Because the Christian faith says that your experience is all about God's experience. He's at the, at the center. We, God doesn't exist to make much of us. We exist to make much of, of God. That's kind of the, the heart and soul of the biblical worldview. But it's not just that I uh, exist to make much of God, that, that God exists and I respond to Him and I kind of revolve around Him. That's, that's true, but um, it's not just me, I, as an individual, right? This is my life. These are my beliefs. This is my relationship, Right? That, that's just like uh, some sort of man-centeredness is foreign to the Bible. So is that kind of uh, modern individualism. Right? It's all about me. It's all about like my, my relationship with God is all that, that matters. Because look at the rest of verse 1. Right? Uh, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. So he's recognizing God is at the center. God acts. I respond. But that response is not something that's done individually. That response is something that's done in the context of a congregation, in the context of the company of the upright, a covenant community, a, a church family. So my relationship with God is personal, right? No one else can repent of my sin. No one else can trust God on my behalf. It's personal, but it's not private and it's not individualistic. It's something that needs to be cultivated alongside other followers of God within the family of God. Right? Uh, a lot of people kind of reserve the right to have their relationship with God on their own terms as they see fit as, as an individual, right? I'm a Christian because I love Jesus because I said, because I, said I do, right? I said I believe in Jesus. I said I love him. No one gets to call that into question. Jesus doesn't get any say in the matter. Uh, other members of my local church don't get any say in the matter. I'm the only one who gets to say whether I love Jesus based on how I feel. Right? My experience, my relationship with God is all about me, what I, what I want. I don't have to listen to anyone else's counsel. I'm going to make all my decisions by myself, thinking about what I want. I don't have to think about other people. I don't have to invite them into my life in any meaningful way. Individualism and autonomy are like the core values of kind of our American, you know, 21st century society. And, and, they're, and they're foreign to the Scriptures. Right? The Bible understands the Christian life to be a part of a community. You trust in God as a part of a congregation. You worship God as a part of a congregation. You cultivate your relationship with God as a part of a church. Christianity is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Likewise, church is not something that you attend on your own terms in the same way that you would attend you know, a 
your favorite restaurant or your favorite grocery store, right? Church is not a product that you consume as an individual. It's a family that you're a part of. It's a covenant community where we have commitments to one another, obligations to one another to attend and give and serve and know one another and encourage one another and disciple one another. If you're consuming church like a product instead of being a part of it like a family, then that's, there's a serious problem. There's, there's, there's ecclesiology uh, somewhere that's kind of gone awry. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, gone off into that which is defective and that which is problematic. Because God intends for us to give thanks to the Lord with our whole heart, but he intends for us to do so in the company of the upright, of the, the congregation, the covenant community, the, the local church. Verse 2, he says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. Right? Big, meaty, right? Thick verses about the the glory of God. Right? The the transcendence of God. The the otherworldliness of God. God is great and majestic and splendid and righteous. And He's he's not righteous like we are for, for a moment that passes. He's righteous in a different way, in a qualitatively better way, right? That never ends. God is not God is not like you. God is not your peer. God is not God is is infinitely bigger and broader and more expansive and more glorious and stronger than you could ever imagine. Take the most impressive thing that you've ever created or made or seen or thought of, right? Consider it. Consider what it taught, what, what, it, what it took to, to make it, what it took to uh, create it. And now consider that God made the universe in an instant. Spoke it into being with His, his words. God is, is infinitely bigger than the universe. He presides over it. He holds it in the palm of His hand. The universe is so small compared to God that it would be like a like a speck of dust or, you know, like in, in your hand, right? That's how big and sovereign and weighty and massive and glorious and splendid and majestic God is. It's not, it's not just, though, that He created the universe past tense. He also sustains it, preserves it, keeps it going where it is present tense. He holds it in place every single Atom and proton and electron is being held in place by God. It's how big and sovereign and weighty and, and glorious and beautiful and majestic God is. More beautiful than the most beautiful thing that you could ever imagine. More majestic, more uh, weighty. God is glorious and transcendent and otherworldly. His supremacy is unrivaled. He is not like you. He is not like anything you've ever known. Right? God is fundamentally different and kind of, uh, you know, presides over and is above and far away from us. It's kind of what's being communicated in verses 2 through 3. But then uh, it's the exact opposite, the exact flip side of the coin in verses 4 through 5, right? God is not only big and sovereign and transcendent and out there away from us, but He's also here, near, close with us. God is, He's caused His wondrous works to be remembered. He's gracious 
He's merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. So at the same time, God is both high and exalted and unapproachable, way far away, but He's also here and close and involved and invested, giving us grace. Grace is, is you know, God treating uh, people um, God's, God, God being good to those who deserve punishment is God's grace. He extends mercy. That would be God extending goodness to those who are uh, in misery or distress. Right? You can't extend grace and mercy to people that you're far away from or that you are indifferent to. And so we kind of see these two elements of, uh, of God's character and how God interacts with His people being held in tension together. God is infinite and transcendent. That's verses 2 through 3. God is personal and, and imminent, right? He's here. He's close. That's verses 4 through 5, and they, they operate together. Theologian John Frame describes the transcendence and the imminence of God uh, in this way. He says, God is exalted in his royal dignity. He's enthroned on high. He's in control and in authority over his creation. And... He is present to His creation, especially to His people, in a way that is personal and intimate, in a covenant relationship. The Bible teaches both, right? Uh, the, the, The Bible knows nothing of this kind of false dichotomy that says, to the extent that God is sovereign and glorious and big, well, then to that same extent, He must be inaccessible to me. He must be uh, far away. He's big, I'm small. Better luck next time, right? The Bible, that, that kind of false dichotomy is foreign to the Bible. Or that, this, that says, right, if God is near, if God is close to me, if I can know God and, and interact with Him and pray to Him and He hears my prayers, then He must be small. He must be impotent he must not be big and sovereign and and strong these are false dichotomies that the bible knows nothing of because god is both transcendent and imminent god is both infinite and personal right god is sovereign in authority and personal in how he relates to us he is high and exalted and above us and he is also near and close and lives dwells within us And he remembers his covenant forever. It's also interesting in verse 5 that this is the language of fatherhood. Right? He provides food. Who else, right, who else um, you know, who else is someone that, that lives in covenant relationship, right? That's covenantally bound to another person for the rest of their life, better or worse, richer or for poorer, sickness and in health, as long as they both shall live. Who's someone else who Uh, takes care of and provides for his family, meets their needs, raises them, disciples them, provides for them, protects them. Verse 5 is the language of a a father. Because that's what God is to his people. Another theologian, J.I. Packer, puts uh, puts it this way. He says, "What, what is a Christian? Well, the question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer that I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. 
If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, then find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his father. Christian is someone who's been adopted into the family of God, lives in covenant relationship with God. God will always remember his covenant with him. He will never forget it. He will never forsake it. Sometimes it's tough to understand who God is. It's tough to assign meaning to our relationship with God, given the fact that we've never seen him, never like heard him speak audibly to us. So how can we understand who God is, the heart of God, and what our relationship with God looks like? And the best metaphor that the Bible has for what God is and what he looks like and how he relates to his people is that of a father, a good father, a faithful father who loves his kids, takes care of his kids, sacrifices for his kids, right? We, just like we heard in the call to worship, who delights in saving his kids, doesn't do it out of obligation, doesn't do it begrudgingly, does it because he loves them, right? There's, you know, there's a father has this innate, instinctive, biological tick in him that loves his children, can't get enough of them. Right, will do anything, even sacrifice his own self to take care of them and, and help them and provide for them and protect them. That relationship between a good, godly father and his son is a reflection of the relationship between God, our father, and us, the children that he has adopted into his family. If you had a good father, thank God for him. And when you remember him, use it as, as fuel to, to kind of uh, think about, direct your attention and cultivate your affection for your heavenly father, who is the perfect uh, manifestation of what your earthly father uh, has been like for you. If, you. if you didn't have a good father, if your father was abusive or absent or if he if he hurt you if you if you did not have a good father here on earth then be encouraged by the theological reality the unbreakable undeniable reality that you do have a good father in heaven regardless of what your earthly father did or didn't do your heavenly father loves you and cares about you and he will never ever forsake his covenant with you. So God is great and glorious and we are called to worship him in the context of a covenant community. He's, he's infinite and transcendent and mighty. He's personal and, and imminent and here and close to us. He is our good father. Then in verse 6, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of nations. This is a reference to God bringing his people into the promised land, and he says to them, I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. I called Abraham into a covenant relationship. Eventually his grandson Jacob would take the family to Egypt because there was a famine, and that was the only place that they could go to get food. In time, their family kept growing. The nation of Egypt got worried. They enslaved them. 
Eventually, God called Moses to lead his people out of Egypt. God called Joshua to lead them back into the promised land of Canaan. And when he did in Deuteronomy chapter 34, God says to his people, I'm going to give you the nations as your inheritance. You are my people. I am your God. I'm going to plant you back in the promised land. We're going to be in covenant relationship together. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless the world through you. That's what's going on here. But there's also something else that's going on here too. And it's kind of interesting if we think about it with the additional perspective of kind of living in the New Testament, uh, you know, living in the New Covenant thousands of years later. If we look at Psalm 2, uh, there's similar language here, right? In Psalm 2, uh, the nations are raging and conspiring against God. They want to fight against God. And God is looking down from the heavens on these nations that are raging and he's laughing. Thinks it's hilarious because he's not intimidated by these nations that are raging against him. And the reason why God is laughing, the reason why he's not afraid at the rage of the nations is because of his son, the Messiah, the king. He knows that his son, the Messiah, is going to destroy all the nations. He's going to crush them with his wrath. He's going to save those people who take refuge in him. That's, that's the, the broad strokes of Psalm 2. God in heaven, God's son, the Messiah, is going to be deployed by God in heaven to defeat his enemies, save his people, and they will live together forever. But during that psalm, God the Father says to His Son the Messiah, He says, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Ask of Me and I will make the nations Your inheritance to the ends of the earth Your possession. Psalm 2, verses 7-8. to That's God the Father. That's this inter-Trinitarian dialogue between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ, wherein... God says to Jesus, I'm going to give the nations to you, Jesus, as your inheritance. But then we have Deuteronomy 34, and we have Psalm 111, where God is saying to his people, I'm going to give you the, the nations as your inheritance. How's God doing that? Like how, how can God give the same nations to his son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, as his inheritance, and also to all of the people of God that have ever lived and ever trusted in God. How can God give the same thing to multiple people? And I would submit that this is kind of a subtle implication. You can see it if you have the eyes of faith, if you have ears to hear. This is a subtle implication tucked away in the corner of the Old Testament of the doctrine of imputed righteousness. Jesus is entitled to have all of the nations as his inheritance. Psalm 2 makes it very clear. It's his. It belongs to him. No one has right to the inheritance of the nations except Jesus. He is the only one. And yet, God gladly and willingly gives all of the nations to his people as their inheritance because they've trusted in Christ. They are hidden in Christ. Everything that rightly belongs to Jesus is given freely and indiscriminately to the people of God. At the cross, Jesus received the punishment, the the shame, the wrath that you deserve. 
And because He did, God now treats His people with the love and acceptance and affirmation and grace that that Christ deserved. We receive the inheritance and the acceptance that was Christ's. Jesus took your sin, took your shame, took your punishment, gave you His righteousness, gave you His inheritance, gave you His eternal life. Let that sink in. Because that is the driving force behind everything that we do as Christians. Every Every word, every thought, every deed should be animated by that reality. That Christ's righteousness has been given to us. That which rightly belongs to Christ has been freely given to us because of what Christ did on the cross for us. Verse 7, we read, The works of God's hands are faithful and just. All of His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. In other words, God never changes. Right? He's faithful, just, trustworthy, established forever, faithful. Oh, like not, God does not change. He does not waver. He does not uh, you know, ebb and flow and go here and, and there. Change is inherent to our society as human beings. There's always, you know, when I, there's always the new flavor of the month. There's always the new thing that you have to read about, know about, the new headlines, the new thing that we're, we're thinking about. The only, thing, the only thing about humanity that doesn't change is the fact that we never stop changing, Right? There's change is just constantly inherent to who we are. God is the exact opposite. God is supremely holy today, and He always has been. Back in the New Testament, back in the Old Testament, back in the Garden of Eden, back in eternity past, God was, always has been supremely holy. He's always been sovereign. He's always been good. He's always been merciful. His attributes never increase. They never decrease. One author puts it this way. God does not change. He's always the same. The things that He is, He simply is to the utmost forever. And because God does not change, we can rely on the unchanging truth of His Word. What God pronounces as sin will always be sin. What God pronounces as good will always be good. All that God has promised will come to pass. The gospel itself is bound up in the idea of God's immutability. His never-changingness. And we fervently need God to stay the same. Our great hope of salvation lies in His remaining exactly who He says He is and doing exactly what He said He will do. As long as God's infinite sameness endures He will not change His mind about setting His love on us. We cannot commit a future sin that will change God's verdict. Because His verdict was passed uh, with every sin, past, present, and future, already fixed in view. Who God pronounces righteous will always be righteous. Nothing we can do can remove uh, from us this seal of promised redemption. 
Nothing can separate us from the unfailing, unchanging love of our unchanging God. That's exactly what this psalmist is getting at here. Faithful, just, trustworthy, established forever, never changes. Then in verse 9, he kind of speaks specifically about how this unchangingness, this, this immutability of God that we see in verses 7 and 8, how it's leveraged on our behalf, specifically how God has moved toward us and, and, and kind of uh, unchangingly set his love and affection on us. And it's by redeeming his people. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. His name is holy and is awesome. Right? So, so God uh, is holy. God is sovereign. God is glorious. But, those, but, but that's not the extent of who God is and what God does. It's also that God redeems His people. The word redemption literally means uh, ransom payment. So the idea is that there's a debt that was owed. There's a price that needed to be paid in order for God's people to be set free. In order for them to be reconciled to God. So, the... the the dilemma of the Bible, the problem, the unsolvable problem of the Bible is that here's all of these covenant promises that God has made to his people all throughout the Old Testament, right? Genesis 12, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make you a great nation. I will bless all of the families of the earth through you. Genesis 20, or Deuteronomy 28, I will bless your cities. I will bless your fields. I will bless your children. I will give you victory. I will establish you. I will make you prosper. We saw earlier, Deuteronomy 34, right? I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Joshua 1, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. All of these covenant promises, but the dilemma, the problem is that in order for God to keep them, a price must be paid. Our sin, the debt that we have incurred because of our sin, has rendered us separated from God, away from God, under the wrath of God, and unable to and, and disqualified from enjoying all of those covenant promises that God made to us. So if God wants to keep His covenant promises, then this price of ransom, this price of redemption must be paid. God's own wrath must be satisfied so that our sin so that our salvation and our forgiveness of sin doesn't represent a, a breach of God's holiness. If God just arbitrarily forgave sinners without requiring payment redemption for their sin, it'd be like a guy, a guy robs a bank, kills someone. Right? He's arrested. He gets his day in court. And his dad is a federal judge and inserts himself onto the bench and declares his son not guilty before he hears any of the evidence. And everyone would look and say, that's not fair. That's not just. The guy who's responsible for administering justice on behalf of the victims has a conflict of interest. He has a personal relationship with the defendant. He needs to recuse himself. He has more of an incentive to forgive the defendant than he does to uphold justice for the victims. That's unjust. God is not an unjust judge. 
When God saves His people, He doesn't just arbitrarily forgive them and turn a blind eye to their sin and the debt that they owed because of it. God redeems His people. He sends redemption to His people. He pays the price, pays the, the, the cost, the ransom that is required to set them free. The wrath and judgment and punishment that they should experience is not forgotten. It's absorbed by Jesus. The penalty that they owe is not overlooked or disregarded. It's paid by Jesus. The guilt and shame that they were carrying on their shoulders is taken by Jesus. And they are now free. They're set free. They're free to experience the love and joy and grace of God what the redemption of God means for us. There's a, a missionary who was, went to an unreached people group to preach the gospel and plant a church. It's a lengthy process. Right? You have to kind of go to a people group. You have to insert yourself into it, assimilate, learn their language, learn their culture, get, build rapport by, you know, Making like assuring them of the fact that you're there for their good and not trying to exploit them. You have to translate the entire Bible into their original language. It's a long, hard process. And this guy was doing that. And he was sitting down translating the Bible with some of the leaders of the village. They'd work through each word, one at a time. What does this word mean? Well, here's what it means in English. Uh, what's, a, what's a complimentary word in your original language, and how do we render that? And they came to the word redemption. And they couldn't find a good analog to translate the word redeem or redemption into in the, the tribe's original language. Talked for a long hours, you know, hours explaining what redemption is, trying to think of a word. And then the, the leaders suggested a word in their language that when translated into English means to, uh, to take, their, take their necks out. And they were like, you know, whenever the Bible says God redeemed his people, then you should translate it as God has taken the necks of his people out. And the missionary asked him, uh, why, why, is, why that particular word for this concept of redemption? And they explained that the history of their people group, rife with warfare, violence, slavery, human trafficking, and the way that prisoners would be trafficked from one place to another is that you, tie, you take one big rope and you tie it around everyone's neck so you're kind of connected in this one big chain, this one big line by a rope that's around your neck and they'd pull it and everyone would kind of be moved from one place to another. And when someone would be set free from slavery, right? when, when someone would buy a slave from a slave uh, trader or owner or when someone you know, would be, would be pardoned and released and be set free from slavery, their neck would be taken out of the, of the rope. And they had a word for that. That when you translate it in English means to take their necks out. But they said that was the closest approximation for the Bible's word for redemption. And this says that God has sent redemption to his people. It's the connotation that we are bound. We're, we're in bondage to Satan, we're, we're being held, right? We're, we're tied by our neck. We're being head uh, to, to death and hell. And at the cross, Jesus has purchased our redemption. He has bought us out of slavery. He has bought us out of this, this hell-bound trajectory. He's paid our debt, paid our ransom, taken the noose off of our neck, 
taken our neck out of the rope of slavery and set us free so that we can enjoy all of the promises, all of the covenant promises that He has made to us so that we can be with God in the presence of God. God has redeemed His people, commanded His covenant, kept His covenant, been faithful to His covenant forever. And then we end in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. So we've seen kind of all of these truths about God, right? God is infinite and personal. He is transcendent and imminent. He's a good father who loves his kids. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He redeems his people, pays the penalty for their sin. But now here there's a shift into how God's people are to respond to the character of God and the grace of God. And the reason why it's here is because it's meant to pave the way. It's meant to kind of serve as a transitional uh, verse to kind of lead into Psalm 112 that we'll look at next week, which is the people of God, the man of God, the, the life and the character and the experience of a person who trusts God. And this verse is setting up Psalm 112. And if you hear this verse and you, you think that it sounds like Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that's, that's a, good, it's a good pull. Because, that, because uh, Proverbs, along with you know, Job and Ecclesiastes, songs, Pro- Proverbs is among the wisdom books, the wisdom literature in the Bible. And there's a handful of psalms that are called the wisdom psalms because they look, a lot, they look and feel a lot like the, the wisdom literature. And Psalm 112 is one of the wisdom psalms that talks about Wisdom and godliness and what a wise, godly person's life will generally look like. And so the psalmist here is kind of setting up the wisdom psalm of Psalm 112 that we'll look at next week, right? Who that person is, right? A person who who fears God, trusts God, follows God, how he has understanding, he has wisdom. His life falls into place as it should because his life as a creature is oriented around God's life and God's existence as his creator, right? This, this person that we'll see in Psalm 112 is a person who lives in view of the theological realities that we read in Psalm 111. He sees God. He savors God. He is saved by God. He receives the grace and mercy of God. He lives in light of it. He rejoices. He, he worships God. He remembers the goodness and grace of God. Right? Uh, Psalm 111, who God is. Psalm 112, the man of God and how he lives in view of and in light of the truths about God. And, and the communion table is where we come to do that exact thing. To, to, to remember and reflect on and live in light of these big, weighty truths about God. Right? We remember... The gospel of Jesus, that God has saved us, that Jesus has died for us, that his body was broken like bread, that his blood was poured out like wine. We remember that God is gracious and merciful, that he provides for those who fear him, that he remembers his covenant, that he has sent redemption to us, that he has given us an inheritance that is great and glorious. We remember all of those theological truths, and then we receive it. And we, we celebrate it and we, we personally appropriate it by eating and drinking together. 
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're a Christian, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. During the last song, just take a moment, reflect on God, confess your sin, receive his grace, come up and celebrate by taking communion. If you're not a Christian, we don't invite you to take communion, we invite you to take Christ. We invite you to turn from your sin, believe the gospel, consider the glory of God that we see in Psalm 111, consider his righteousness and his holiness, recognize that you cannot earn his favor, his approval on your own. You cannot accomplish your salvation on your own. You need a savior. You need Christ. So turn to him, run to him, and and trust in him. So you can experience the grace that he offers and so that you can take communion with us in the future. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are so blessed to know you. Lord, you are great, you are glorious, you are splendid, you are majestic, you are righteous, gracious, merciful, faithful, powerful, trustworthy, upright, and you have redeemed us. Such a privilege to know a God like that and to have a relationship with a God like that. So we thank you, and we look to you, and we love you, and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.